pulling out of my neighborhood. You all know I live on 441. I was pulling out of my neighborhood on Friday afternoon about 5 o'clock and couldn't get out of my neighborhood because there were so many people heading down to the lake. Somebody said to me before church that this is the weekend where you discover who has a lake house. Uh, so in any case, good to see all of y'all here today. Um, we are, before I get into this, I just wanted to remind you that we've got some small group opportunities coming up um, at the church. And if you look in your bulletin, there's different home groups that you can be a part of um, happening all across the church family. And so we invite you to come out. Uh, I'm actually going to be leading one of those at the home of Steve and Becky Dempsey. They live across from Athens Academy um, up in the north end of Oconee, up in that part of Oconee. And so you can come out and be part of our group. We're going to be covering the um, basic doctrines class. Some of y'all have been through that class before. I'll be covering some of that material in there for the fall uh, where we connect Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures. And so if you want to be a part of that group, you can just shoot me an email. My email address is in and my cell phone number are both in the bulletin. We'd love to have you out for that. Um, we've been in a series looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter, and we began studying uh, several weeks ago the first of the two letters that Peter writes to encourage the churches. We learned last week, or saw last week, how Peter's recipients were a group of Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, so they're Jewish Christians, Jewish by heritage, Jewish in their background, but they've come to realize that Jesus really is this Messiah that the Jewish people have been looking for all this time, and so Peter writes a letter to encourage this group of people. We had talked over the last several weeks that this letter was written between 63 and 64 AD, this is the first of the two letters he writes, um, and it's right up against when Peter's going to end up, he doesn't know this at the time, but when Peter's going to end up being crucified upside down in 65 AD by Emperor Nero. Um, we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 today, and uh, this is really kind of a two-part message for us, because the first part of this I want to cover, Peter does a theological teaching. He talks about why Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins and mine, and then the practical outworkings of that is what we'll get to next week, where he begins to talk about marriage relationships. He begins to talk about our relationship to the government, um, all those sorts of things, our relationship to our employer, and so the practical outworkings of this theological teaching. Um, so today we're just going to take a look at Jesus on the cross and how that's sufficient to pay for your sins and mine. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be reading it, begin reading at verse 21 through verse 24. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 21. Here we go. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You may be seated. Some of you are thinking to yourself, you know what, I don't want to give Gordon any quotes before church because he might use them in part of his sermon. You never know. Um, first Peter, people tell me stories sometimes during the week and they end up in a sermon. So you never know. First Peter chapter 2, um, let's dive in and, uh, beginning at verse 22. He says, he, the Lord Jesus, committed no sin. Now you say to yourself, Gordon, how could it possibly be 
that a human being, flesh and blood person, never committed a sin. Uh, Wesley defines sin as a willful transgression of a known law of God. As you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway, you willfully transgressed. Um, how could it possibly be that a human being, flesh and blood, could never commit any sin? Because, for example, the Bible says, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that all, that's everybody, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, you're right. Every single human being who has ever walked the face of this earth has committed some sin with the exception of the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus was, came into the world without a sinful nature like we have. He didn't have a natural bent or natural inclination to commit sins. Um, like Adam and Eve, when they came into the world, didn't have that sinful nature. Uh, but they succumbed to sin. They succumbed to temptation. Um, Jesus did not. Uh, not only did he not have the sinful nature, but he remained faithful and obedient to the moral laws of God. He had the potential to sin just as Adam and Eve did, but Jesus never sinned. Sin can be defined again as a willful transgression of a known law of God. Jesus had no slip-ups to this regard. Jesus never sinned in deed. Jesus never sinned in action. Jesus never sinned in thought. Peter says he committed no sins. Friends, this is the consistent claim of the Bible. Consider Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin, who prior to his death on the cross, prior to crawling up on the cross, knew no sin. You say, well, Gordon, I mean, that's a really nice piece of uh, theology or, or, or concept for you to claim, but do you have any proof that Jesus really never did sin? I mean, is there any kind of empirical evidence that we can look at that can satisfy the curiosity of the curious mind or the skeptic that would say, you know what, Jesus really did never sin? Well, yes, we actually do have some evidence. First of all, there's the fact that Jesus challenged his own accusers to find fault in him. He said to them, John chapter 8 and verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, which one of you can find me guilty of having committed a sin? And the answer is, none of them could do it because Jesus never sinned. How about at Jesus' trial, the Sanhedrin brought in witness after witness in hopes of finding something that they could pin on Jesus. But they kept coming up empty. Matthew 26 and verse 59 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. Notice that it says they were seeking false testimony. They, they knew that they couldn't come up with something real. They knew they couldn't come up with something legitimate to pin on Jesus. And so they just were out there looking for anything that they could come up with. And it says, even in their search for false testimony, verse 60, they found none. How about the testimony of Herod Antipas, the first government official to examine Jesus after the Sanhedrin had brought them to him? Herod didn't think that Jesus had done anything wrong. Over in Luke chapter 23 and verse 14, Pilate is talking to the elders of Israel, and Pilate says to the elders, He brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, Pilate says, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges, verse 15, neither did Herod. So neither one of these government officials that examined Jesus from an objective point of view, Herod nor Pilate, and these guys were trying to push them to, hey, convict this guy, convict this guy, convict this guy. So they had every reason to follow along with what the Sanhedrin said, and after examination, both of them agreed Jesus had never done anything wrong. Pilate's own wife warned him not to do anything to Jesus because she knew him to be an innocent man. Matthew 27 and verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous, notice she calls Jesus, that righteous man. 
for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The criminal who was crucified uh, next to Jesus acknowledged that he was innocent. Luke 23 and verse 41, And we indeed justly, talking to the other criminal on the cross, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The only exposure that this criminal had to the Lord Jesus was just a few moments that they were there lingering on the cross next to one another. And in just those few moments, this criminal recognized this is an innocent man. The centurion who watched Jesus die realized that Jesus was an innocent man. Luke 23 and verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And then how about Jesus' own betrayer, Judas, recognized the injustice of what he had done. Matthew 27 and verse 4. Judas said, I have sinned. How have I sinned? By betraying innocent blood. How about the testimony of those who knew Jesus really well? People who had spent a significant amount of time with Jesus. His disciples uh, traveled with him for three years during his public ministry. Camped out alongside of him. Heard him uh, interact with people. Saw how he interacted with people. Saw him in difficult situations. But never once did any of them see him sin during that three-year period. John, the disciple of Jesus, says of him, 1 John 3 and verse 5, You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. How about the testimony of Peter? We just read it a few moments ago. Peter was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. He was part of the inner circle of three out of the twelve that was, was most closest to Jesus. And Peter writes, 1 Peter 2 and verse 22, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Remember, not long after Peter writes those words, he's going to be crucified upside down by Nero. Uh, and Peter, rather than recant his story, he was willing to die for that story because he knew that story to be true. Now, I think the most compelling evidence of all, now there's a lot of evidence that we pointed to, but I think the most compelling evidence of all is the evidence and the testimony of Jesus' two brothers, Jude and James, two fellows who wrote part of the New Testament. Both of these guys testify that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and thereby vouched for his sinless life. Jude chapter 1 and verse 1, Jude opens up his letter to the church saying, Jude, a servant of Christ. Notice he doesn't point out that, hey, this is my brother. He points out, this is my Messiah. This is my Lord. This is my Savior. This is the Christ. James chapter 1 and verse 1, same introduction referring to Jesus. James says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Notice that both of these men call Jesus the Christ. Both of these men saw Jesus as the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and nothing less than that. There is nobody who was going to know whether or not Jesus had sinned as much as these two guys could have known it. It's going to be these two guys who grew up sleeping on the bunk up above Jesus. It's going to be these two guys who walked home from school every day with the Lord Jesus when he was a little guy. It's going to be these two guys who witnessed how he responded to mom and dad and all the rest of the siblings over the course of his entire life. I mean, if you were to think of the siblings in your house and say, you know what, I don't think any of them ever sinned. I mean, we, you, right? That's crazy to even say something like that. But these guys really believe that. They knew that to be true. It's no wonder that he was his mom's favorite child, right? Um, and just like with Peter and just like with the other disciples, Jude and James were martyred. They were willing to die to defend what they knew to be true. You say, oh, Gordon, okay, Gordon, I get it. So what, uh, what if Jesus was sinless? I mean, what does that even matter? Well, um, it matters a big deal, and Peter actually shows us why that matters, that Jesus lived a sinless life. 
Um, earlier in his letter, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he says, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What is Peter referring to here? Peter is making a connection between the innocent blood that Jesus shed on the cross and the perfect innocent lamb of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament sacrificial system where you'd bring a lamb and you would take the life of that lamb uh, and that that lamb would represent your sins poured out um, as a sacrifice to God. Um, let's take a quick look at that. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. It's the eve of the very first Passover. The Jewish people are in Egypt. They're making preparations to leave Egypt. So this is about 13, 1400 years before uh, Jesus would come on the scenes. And so uh, God says in order to make preparations for this death angel, which is going to come into the land of Egypt, it's going to fly over the land of Egypt, and it's going to uh, kill every firstborn of every household. And it's also going to kill the firstborn of the livestock. In order for the Jewish people not to experience what the death angel is bringing, God gives them some instructions. He says to preserve their lives, Exodus 12 and verse 5. He says, your lambs should be without blemish. In other words, there can't be anything wrong with this lamb. There cannot be no defects with it. And they are to take this perfect lamb. They're to go out to the stoop of their, of their home. They're to lift up the chin of that lamb, take its life, and then take the blood that's poured out of that lamb, sprinkle it over the doorpost of their home, and that way when the death angel comes, it'll see the blood on the doorpost, and it will pass over or fly over uh, without any harm to the Israelites. Now back to Peter. Peter is drawing from that image, claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, that Jesus' precious blood, Jesus' spotless, innocent, blemish-free blood serves as a once-and-for-all sacrifice for our sins. The writer of Hebrews keys in on this very same concept. Remember, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is writing to who? The title, the Hebrews, right, to Israelites. So he's writing to Jewish people. That's his audience. They know all about these sacrificial lambs. And he says to them, Hebrews 9 uh, and verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy places that is up into heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. And then he follows that up by saying, verse 14, that the blood of Christ was offered to God without blemish. Was Jesus without sin? Everybody around him seemed to think so. Even to the point that many of them were willing to give their lives to defend what they knew to be true. All right, well, that is as far as we want to go with uh, this part of the text for today. And so it's time for us to ask the question that we ask every week around here. Uh, what difference does all this make to my life? Like, Peter, I'm really glad for the theological teaching. Um, I'm grateful to know that Jesus was the sinless person. That he died on the cross. But what difference does that make to me? It's um, a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, if you skip over to verse 24, Peter is going to answer that question for us. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, that he himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, what does that mean? What Peter is referring here to Jesus on the cross. So when he says on the tree, he's talking about the cross itself. Um, and then he says what happened on the tree is that Jesus bore our sins in his body. Um, I want you to flip over. If you have your Bibles, you can just follow along with me on the screen or your phone, however you all want to do it. But Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, and we're going to see in Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, Jesus actually bear our sins. Okay, this is the story of Jesus. This is his passion. This is him up on the cross. 
And, he's telling, and Mark is recounting the story of Jesus on the cross. That's given some of the details. And we're going to actually see Jesus bear our sins. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Mark writes, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Some of you have a study Bible, and it will give a little text note, and it'll say that the sixth hour is actually 12 noon. Some of your translations will just tell you it was 12 noon. Um, at the sixth hour, what happens is there was darkness over the whole land. Now, there's a word that's translated there in the Greek, and i got a slide for you here, and it's the word gain, and it's translated in your ESV as land. In some of your other versions, it may be translated as earth. When you see the word earth, especially in the... Uh, the NIV version, you see the word earth, that's the word gain that's appearing in the Greek text. Um, the gain was a specific word in the first century, and it meant something to the hearers, the people who would hear that word in the first century. Um, it referred to the Fertile Crescent, and that's what that map is there. Uh, the Fertile Crescent was a crescent-shaped part of, the, of land that surrounded the Arabian Desert that started in modern-day Iraq and extended all the way down into southern Egypt. And that crescent-shaped area was arable soil. It was soil that you could farm. It's soil that you could grow crops in. I mean, very different from the Arabian desert that it surrounds. Um, and so when a person in the first century would use the term gain, this is the piece of land that they had in mind. The, the word in Greek literally translates dirt. Um, but they're trying in the, in the translation to say, well, in their mind, it meant something more than that. Well, in their mind, what it meant was this fertile arable soil, soil where you could grow stuff in, fertile crescent. Um, so wherever you run into this word again in the Greek, the word gain, know that the first century person was talking about this particular patch of earth or patch of dirt. Um, if they had wanted, if the biblical writers had wanted to refer to the whole globe, they had a word for that in the Greek, and it's the word cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmos from. And it's translated in John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so cosmos, or God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, referring to the whole thing. But this word gain, when it appears in the New Testament, it's referring to that specific piece of land. So back to Mark chapter 15. He says that darkness came over the whole gain, or the fertile crescent land. And it is worth noting that this is a sweeping regional event it covered multiple Roman provinces. It would have been very noticeable and very scary, you might think, for the whole land, this whole area, to go into darkness. Night or daytime turns to nighttime. Um, in fact, we have records in Egypt uh, of this event taking place, of them experiencing this darkness down in Egypt well, at the time of Christ's crucifixion. The Bible says that this lasted from noon, the sixth hour, until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., if you flip over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23 and verse 44, Luke records the same thing. He says in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, same time frame as Mark, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour or 3 p.m. So for three hours, there was this darkness that hovered over or enveloped that part of the world. Remember, it was right smack in the middle of the day. Couldn't miss that something cosmic was going on here. Here we are in the middle of the day, and it turns to, to dark, to nighttime. What's happening here? Um, in the Greek, the word that's translated darkness is the word skatos, and it is used in one of two ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it is used to refer to nighttime, to darkness. Sometimes it is used to refer to a spiritual darkness, a spiritual darkness. 
Um, some scholars have suggested that the darkness referred to here was not a literal nighttime event, but a spiritual hardening that covered over that part of the world. Well, that seems very reasonable, perhaps, uh, that, to make that kind of a conclusion. But I wonder what the motivation is behind such a claim. Is it not possible that these scholars are trying to explain away another embarrassing, hard-to-believe miracle account in the Bible? It is interesting that these same scholars will swallow the pill of a dead man coming back to life, but they struggle at the whole world, uh, or that part of the world, becoming dark for three hours. No, the context could not be more clear. The biblical writers are referring to literal darkness, a nighttime event that takes place while Jesus is hanging there on the cross from noon until 3 p.m. If this was a spiritual darkness, a symbol, a symbolic darkness that only lasted for a few short hours, then why is it that we do not have widespread Jewish rabbis and Jewish Sanhedrin and Jewish Pharisees and throngs of people bowing down and confessing that they had just killed their Messiah? Their hearts were suddenly no longer hardened. Their hearts were now uh, um, open to, the, to, the, um, to respond to the gospel. But we don't see that. The fact of the matter is that we are going, if we are going to call ourselves biblical Christians, we must be prepared to accept the totality of Scripture, not just the parts that we find unoffensive to our modern, secularly trained minds. Remember, we serve the God of the universe. And this God of the universe created the laws of the universe and therefore, as its creator, is not subject to those laws. It is no more difficult for God to turn daytime into nighttime than it is for him to part the waters of the sea, to flood the earth, or to raise a dead man back to life. That is certainly within, certainly within God's capacity to do. He is God. He is the creator of the universe. Amen? All right. Now the question, why did this darkness happen? Why was the land covered in darkness? Flip back over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter tells us, verse 24, Peter writes that Jesus, at the end of verse 24, that Jesus bore in his body our sins. Remember, Jesus went to the cross to become our Passover lamb. He went to suffer and die and to pay the price that was due to you and I. And so here's what happened in the moments while he was on the cross. Darkness covered the land, and the sins of the world from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock were being heaped upon the body of Jesus. Peter says he bore our sins in his body. Literally, the sins of the world, past, present, and future, were cosmically being cast upon the body of the Lord Jesus and this cosmic transference continued for three hours as Jesus hung there on the cross. All of the rape, all of the incest in the history of the world, all of the adultery and the lust of the eyes, all of the lying and the stealing and the murder and the acts of malicious, unjust violence in the history of the world all the willful transgressions of the known laws of God committed by men, these were being heaped upon the broken and dying and suffering body of our Lord. You know, when we look at the cross, we tend to focus on the physical suffering of Christ, as we should. I mean, it was tremendous what Jesus went through on our behalf, physically. But when you consider that he who knew no sin suddenly, in a tidal wave, gets covered up 
with all the world's filth, with all of the world's depravity, with all of the world's violence, friends, that must have been the greatest and most severe suffering and torture that the cross could offer. Something that we don't see in the physical realm, but it is something that Jesus experienced in the, in the um, spiritual realm. Sometimes I wonder if the anxious sweating of drops of blood in the garden had less to do with the anticipation of physical suffering and more to do with knowing that the sins of the world were on their way. Sin was something that the Godhead had never experienced before. And when the holy God of the universe looked down at his son becoming sin for us, friends, the holy God of the universe shielded his eyes covering over the land where his son was, God turned his head away. He could not tolerate sin even in his own son. Which is why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because from noon to three o'clock, the Son of God bore our sins in his body. Peter wraps up this teaching with the words, end of verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I hope that the realization of what Jesus did for you is compelling enough to send you running to his arms. You know, the God of the universe loves you mightily, greatly, and he demonstrates that love for you on the cross. And so I urge you, therefore, to give your life to him today, to bow your head here in just a few moments and to close your eyes in just a few moments and to ask for his forgiveness, to invite him to become your Lord and your Savior. Jesus wants to forgive you. He's just waiting for you to ask. Something for you to think about. For those of us who have already made that decision to follow Jesus, I hope this renews in us a sense of gratitude, that it makes us want to praise the Lord, for what he has done for you and I, um, that we, it fuels our worship of him, so that when we are riding down the road in the car, the Lord hears with fresh exuberance our love and our devotion to him. I hope what we've heard today steps up our desire to live a life free of sin, to honor Jesus with our bodies, to honor Jesus with our thoughts, to honor Jesus with our actions. I hope that what we've heard today emboldens us to want to share this good news with people in the world around us who don't know what Jesus did for them um, and that the, the forgiveness that is available to them. You know, it is good to meditate on the cross. It brings a lot of healing. And it reminds us again of the great love that God has for us. It's good to be reminded of the lengths to which God was willing to go to rescue us back to himself. I want to close with these words from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Isaiah was a prophet looking forward to the time of Christ. He writes this some 700 years before Jesus would ever show up on the scene. He's talking about the Messiah. And Isaiah says, chapter 53 and verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded or crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for just a fresh reminder uh, that Peter points to of the length to which you were willing to go to rescue us out of our sin. 
Lord, during this time of quiet this morning, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, if there's some business that we need to do in the spiritual realm, Holy Spirit, instruct us how to pray. Lord Jesus, bring forgiveness and healing. Restore, renew. Lord, we give you this space. And we ask you to work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.